Hello everyone, I'm Gareth Mitchell and welcome along to this, the second in our podcast series, Exploring Analytical Science. I'm a tech radio presenter and a science communication lecturer, but enough about me, let's jump into our topic today and we're going to be finding out about determining the flavour profiles of hard cheeses. We'll meet our guest in just a moment. Now this podcast series comes from Agilent, a global life sciences company providing solutions for the analytical lab and also Imperial College London, where I happen to have lived for about the last 20 years or so, a world-leading institution for scientific research and education. So let's meet our guest, Dr. Lisa Haig, Mass Spectrometry Manager in the Small Molecule Core Facility in the Department of Chemistry at Imperial College. And I think we're all going to love the subject matter, talking about cheese, but many other aspects today, Lisa. Just tell us a bit about yourself and your research. What do we need to know? Yeah, so just starting with a little bit of background on myself, if that's okay with you. So I did a BSc and PhD in organic chemistry at Cardiff University. And a lot like a lot of other people, I got a little bit fed up with in the lab by the end of my PhD. So I went off to be an assistant editor for the American Chemical Society. After that, I decided that really I would like to go back to the lab. So I started as a deputy facility manager for mass spectrometry at University College London. And I was there for about nine years. And then I started at Imperial College in 2012 as facility manager for the mass spectrometry facility in the Department of Chemistry. But so as the facility manager, I support all of the research groups within chemistry, other departments at Imperial College, and I collaborate with a lot of other institutions and companies, and these can be based around the UK and Europe. And this allows me to analyze a whole variety of different compounds, so small molecules, proteins, peptides, metal complexes, polymers, etc., etc., So in the spare time I do have, I am able to start looking at my own research, and this is primarily due to the extra instrumentation available within the Agilent suite. So this is what I'm going to talk about today. Looking forward to that, but what a role you have. I mean, it just sounds lots of different compounds, lots of different researchers, lots of different research topics. Exactly. So plenty plenty to keep you busy which brings us beautifully then to this wonderful subject of cheese so where are your interests when it comes to analyzing cheese so firstly i think the best part of this project is that because you only require very very small amounts of uh, cheese to actually analyze and get the data you get to eat the rest of it afterwards which is my favorite (laughs) bit of all (laughs) perk of the job definitely (laughs) yeah definitely a perk so i thought i've focus my main research based around um, British cheeses uh, and what makes up their flavours, etc, etc. So if you look on various web pages, you'll see that there are over like 1800 different cheeses just produced in the UK at this moment in time. Not all hard cheeses, that's blue cheeses, soft cheeses and everything, etc. So obviously you need to narrow that down. So I picked hard cheeses because basically I like to eat them as well. Perfectly um, good rationale. <laughs> yeah, why not? If you if you if you have to get the cheese in, you have to buy it in two hundred grams, whatever. You only need a few migs <laughs> to do your analysis. What are you going to do with the rest? You might as well eat it. Um, so when you when you're eating cheese, mainly hard cheeses, you'll notice that they don't have the same taste. Now they could be cheddars, they could be other hard cheeses but they don't all taste the same. And this can either be down to like the manufacturing process, how the cheese has been stored, how mature the cheese is, 
and things like that. So here you have to consider things like uh, what were the cows fed with? This could have an impact on the flavour of the cheese. And then whether the cheese is stored and matured in waxes or cloths, things like that, how it's stored and how it's matured. Now, my main focus then, to narrow it down even further, was looking at regional variations in hard cheeses. So why do cheeses from different areas of the UK vary in taste? So I'm mainly at the moment trying to look at southwest and northwest cheeses, particularly hard cheeses, just to see how their taste and flavours change by what compounds are present in their uh, makeup. And I've been using the analytical instrumentation in the Agilent Suite to analyse the flavour profiles. So basically what components are in these cheeses that make them taste the way they do. And if we can pinpoint those, then we can be able to put up almost like a family tree of how cheeses have distinctive flavours from different areas. And obviously we'll get into your analysis as we go along, but have you set out with any working hypotheses about what might affect the taste of the cheese in terms of the region? I mean, could it be anything to do with altitude, soil? I'm, I'm just making stuff up here, but what do you think might be at play? This is definitely something that's of interest. So I, I'm mainly interested, you know, how, yeah, like you said, how does the weather change things? How, do, how, do, how does the effect of it being in wax change things and, and stuff like that? And to be honest, there has been work done on cheeses, but very little done on regional variations. And so this is where I want to, want to focus on. I want to try and see what the, and exactly like you said, feed, soil, storage, weather, do, do these actually impact on anything or is it just random? <laughs> and a bit later on, I'll probably go into what type of compounds you'll get out of the analysis. But it's so complex. It's that you can have hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of compounds present within different types of cheeses. So this is where the complexity comes in. Very difficult to, to try and pinpoint, but that's what we're going to try and do. <laughs> Right, so you need the right tools for the job. So you're concentrating yeah. specifically on GCMS, so that's gas that's chromatography mass spectrometry, isn't it? So tell us yeah. a little bit about that technique. Yeah, so I thought I'd first start on how uh, gas chromatography mass spectrometry works. From from quite a simplistic viewpoint, obviously it can get a lot more complicated, but I was trying to aim this as to mainly non-scientific and mainly scientific people that just take it, that maybe not analytical, have an interest in this sort of thing. So there are two parts, like you said, gas chromatography and mass spectrometry. And these are coupled together to be able to give us the information that we require. So the GC part, the gas chromatograph part, acts to separate out all of the components in the mixture. And then once they're separated, they go into the mass spectrometer for identification. So within the gas chromatograph, there is what we call a column which is just a, a coil of thin silica, which is typically either 30 metres or 60 metres long, but coiled up in such a way that it doesn't have a big footprint in the, in the lab itself. And this contains a chemical compound known as a stationary phase. Now, how the gas chromatograph works is that we flow a gas through the stationary phase, which is typically something like helium or hydrogen. And then we inject our sample, so maybe our cheese, but it has to be in solution, onto the stationary phase. And we're typically looking at injecting microgram or nanogram quantities here. 
So our sample then will, as it goes in, all our different components within the sample will interact with the stationary phase within the column. And these different chemical compounds will basically get held onto the column. As we, we then apply heating to the column, now we could say heat at five degrees per minute or 10 degrees per minute. And with contributions from the gases we're using as well, the interactions with the chemical compounds that we're analyzing and the stationary phase will change. So then instead of being held on the column, they are then released from the column as we heat up our column over time and as we have gas contributions. Now, all our different chemical compounds are then released from the column at specific time points. This is called a retention time. And these time points, these retention times, are specific to specific chemical compounds. So that means that you can pretty much, if you have a standard of your sample, you could just run a GC and run it through. And provided they come out at the same time, you can be pretty sure it's the same chemical compound. However, we want to put this into the math spec as well for further identification. So once the, once the chemical compounds are released from the column, they travel into the mass spectrometer. And a mass spectrometer typically has three parts to it, a source, an analyzer, and a detector. In order for us to get any mass spectral data, we got to ionize these molecules that have come out of the column from the stationary phase. So our ionization will happen in the source section. So we, what we do here is all the chemical compounds coming off the column, we actually bombard these with electrons. This makes our molecules lose an electron themselves. The more they're getting hit by electrons within the source section, we lose an electron from our molecule. This then becomes ionized. Once it's ionized, we can get some data from it. So the Ionized molecule can then go through into the analyzer section of the mass spectrometer where the ions are separated in accordance with their masses. So different masses will separate in the analyzer different ways. And the detector is there to then take that information and translate it into the software for us. And here we obtain what's known as our mass spectrum. Now, our mass spectrum will give us the mass, and in this case, to four decimal places, which is quite interesting because we can get some more structural information from it. This will give us our molecule as a whole, just minus one electron, which is known as our molecular iron. And because in the source section, we're constantly bombarding our molecules with electrons, we're also going to cause this these chemical compounds to fragment within the mass spectrometer. Now, this means that when we get our mass spectrum, we see our molecular ion, which is our chemical compound as a whole entity. We'll also then get fragments of these molecules. And these fragments of our molecules, especially if we have unknown compounds, we can then look at these fragments, look at all this information, pull all that information together, and then build up a picture of what molecules we're going to have in our um, cheese compounds. I mean, what a great explanation that was! It's it's quite a process, and what it that's... is quite difficult to try to try and put into almost as well, like non non uh, minimal scientificy type. 
No, I, I get it. But you did a great job of just explaining that that whole process. And it, it sounds like a very complicated process. And and what really comes across to me then is that the resolution it gives you, is, is that the principal advantage of doing it this way? Yeah, you can, I mean, you can get a multitude of information from this as well. So you can get fragmentations, you can get, uh, if you get your data to four decimal places, this again, this can narrow down the type of compounds you, you, you're looking at. So like I said, there can be hundreds and hundreds. So this this is primarily the best the best way to do this. That's that's uh, GCMS as a uh, injection via solution, but you can also do what's called Headspace GC, which ultimately the whole the whole process of the chemical compounds being separated and everything works in exactly the same way. It's just the introduction of the sample into the instrumentation that's slightly different. So uh, yeah, I wanted to ask you about headspace. Yeah. So and that's the principal difference. And is it just what happens to the sample on its way in? Yes, on its way in, definitely. And in some ways, this is a lot easier to handle because with conventional GCMS, you have to basically have your sample in solution. So you have to be able to get all your components that you want to look for into solution. Whereas with headspace, what you do here is you have a headspace vial, which is typically 10 mil or 20 mil vial and you just put your cheese as a solid so you just put a little cube of cheese directly into this headspace vial and then what you do is you agitate this sample and you heat it at a specific temperature for a specific period of time so you've got it mixing around you've got it heating so you'll release all the volatile components that are within your cheese so what we think makes up the flavors should go into the into the headspace part of the vial which is basically air yeah, into so, the air. So basically, what you're doing very scientifically is making a cheese melt here, aren't you? Yeah, that, you know, <laughs> toasted cheese sandwich. What more could you want? <laughs> um, you just, yeah, basically, you're melting the cheese. You're trying to get all the stuff that can combine into these flavour components into this headspace vial, and then once all your volatile components are within the air part of the headspace vial, you basically inject maybe one milliliter or two and a half milliliters of this air directly into the GC and then uh, and then the rest of the process is identical but this will help with uh, compounds that maybe wouldn't go into solution normally and maybe very very low mass compounds that, that would basically under room temperature conditions might evaporate straight away you can basically contain them in this vial and pull them out and see what's in there. Right. So what kind of results do you get then? What what does this tell you about the makeup of the cheese? So, like I said, you get the mass spectral data, you get the retention times from the column. And from this, you can hopefully start to pinpoint down what, what type of compounds are present within the cheeses. So I pulled out a couple of uh, examples of what different cheeses have already been studied and kind of what they've already found. And what they kind of taste like when you're there so you'll see that you know some cheeses and I think mainly cloth like cheeses that have been made up in cloth will contain sulfur or sulfur containing compounds and if you look at flavor notes of cheeses you'll see that they're referred to as um burnt or cooked or sometimes or sometimes even it comes up as like cat urine apparently is a is a cheese flavor 
So not quite sure where you'd nice. eat that. They, they wouldn't put that on the marketing blurb, would they, on the cheese? I, I doubt it, but, but yeah, some of them come up like that. And um, you get things like acids, ketones, aldehydes, aromatic hydrocarbons, and all these compounds are mainly coming from the metabolism of the lactose and the lactate and the citrates within the cheese. But it's so it's such a complex mixture. But just to give you an example, um, I was looking at a review published in 2018, and this was done by Food Science Lab in Ireland. And they were looking at some French hard cheeses and they found uh, an aldehyde called hexanal, which is uh, supposed to give cheeses like a fruity note. Well, something like uh, methylbutanol, which they also found, which is also an aldehyde, this came across as either being um, malty or chocolatey type flavours. And then things like ketones have been identified as rotten fruits <laughs> or earthy or orangey, depending on the type of ketone detected. And then one other thing I wanted it was... Um, Aromatic hydrocarbons, you can get things like toluene or benzene, maybe in the cheeses in very, very small amounts. Uh, and they can be associated with what's called a rancid note in cheese. <laughs> so. yeah, it's less appetizing. But so I understand how you get these wonderful, if I can put it this way, molecular fingerprints. But yeah. How do you map those onto flavours? Because I always think of flavour as being something that's quite subjective. I mean, do you have to calibrate all this by going to the tasting notes of professional cheese tasters? Yeah, this is where this always becomes a little bit, um, yeah, gloopy, as it were, because because like you said, it's very, very much um, in, in some cases, some compounds have been already identified as being associated with specific flavors but yes flavor uh, like you said is very very subjective so again yeah you can say yes these compounds are associated with this flavors but then somebody else might go oh no <laughs> it doesn't really work so again it's so complex so so random almost you know you have to really try and pinpoint these things down and like I said there's been a lot a lot of research done on this and if you look at some of the stuff that's been done it's so much so many different groups working on it so many different things being done and and such a complex mixture that even if you can pinpoint one or two compounds within within a cheese you're doing well <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And um, so this um, GCMS technique, could you apply it to other, I mean, let's stick with foods, for instance, but mm. I don't know, chocolate maybe, or, or oh, yeah. honey, truffles, I, I, wine, whiskey, you, where does it end? Wine, of course, best. Um, <laughs> oh, there, any excuse. No. So, uh, well, actually, this is something if, you know, something we're looking at in the future. So, uh, yes, you could do it to any other food stuff. So, I mean, I've also started dabbling in a little bit of spices, you know, taking some spices and trying to find out. There's obviously family trees of spices. So you can pull out components within specific spices that bind it to a family, that sort of thing. But one interesting thing we're looking at to do in the future, and I've had permission to mention this from the people involved, is that we're hoping to start up some student projects based around uh, GCMS and Headspace MS with our new chemical kitchen department. So at Imperial College, we've started up what's called the Chemical Kitchen, and this is run by Dr. Luke Delmas and Dr. Jakob Radzikowski. 
And this aims to show how chemistry and gastronomy can work together and how we can use analytical techniques to improve, for example, like the way we cook. So if we analyze different cooking conditions, so if we cook something for a certain period of time, analyze it, how does that taste change? And can we optimize, enhance or improve the flavors of the cooking process and identify the flavors and then basically almost like optimize cooking conditions for different types of breads or cakes or whatever like that so that's something that's coming up in the future as well well that that sounds absolutely fascinating and i wonder therefore if we can draw begin to draw to a close anyway by going back to where we started (laughs) which is is this idea that that you introduced of this aim to end up with like a cheese family tree as it were and you know mapped onto different parts of the uk yeah how close are we to getting this definitive cheese family tree are we there <laughs> no i would probably not <laughs> Every, yeah. because instrumentation is getting so more accurate so more um sensitive and this is where the ams has come in really you know without, without this without the access to this instrument this this would never have been happening anyway but I think it's so varied, so complicated. And obviously as well, you've got batch to batch variations too. So that's always going to be a, a complicated area to get into as well. So so I'm thinking, yeah, eventually between a lot of different people, a little do, lot of different research groups, then maybe you can start to pin it down. But I have a feeling it would take a very, very long time <laughs> to start actually definitively sticking it into a family tree. That's a lot of cheese you need to eat to get there, really. Oh, don't worry. I'm and... happy. I'm happy to do that. I'm happy <laughs> to sacrifice. <laughs> well, it's a, a, a very selfless of you. I congratulate you. So, <laughs> so I suppose finally, then, where is this all going? Then I know the idea of the family tree is, is a way off, but in the more immediate term, then you know, how do you see this progressing? In the more immediate future, I would just like to, because this is very much in its infancy for me at the moment. So it's to just take my region, my my couple of regions, maybe at the moment, look at various different cheeses from those regions, try and start to pinpoint, even if we've got common things that are common across every region, we can put those in as well. It doesn't have to be what makes them different. It could be what makes them the same. And if they happen to be the same, why do they still taste different? Is there something else in there that we can't see? Do we need to try different analytical techniques to try and pull these things out? That sort of thing. So that's the very immediate future. And again, with the instrumentation in the Agilent Suite Imperial, this is going to make it very possible. And that's an exciting point on which to end. It's been a real pleasure, uh, Lisa Haig. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Gareth. It's been been actually quite, it's been a good good talk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's made me feel hungry. I know that much. And of course, you're at the um, Department of Chemistry at Imperial College. And if you want to find Lisa, I think just follow those little cheese crumbs and uh, you'll find your way into the lab there, I think. Uh, So what a pleasure. Thanks so much, Lisa. All the best with your ongoing work. Thanks for talking to the podcast. And uh, also to you, dear listener, thanks for being with us stay tuned for our next episode where we'll be discussing engineering a new screening tool for early prediction of preterm birth based on micro rna biomarkers so we'll see you then thanks for listening bye-bye